please turn uh, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we will read this morning the first uh, 13 verses. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. May this word give you life and be your comfort in affliction. Heavenly Father, may you uh, open our hearts that we might understand those things that are spiritually discerned. May you give us a faith as we hear your word that we should produce uh, new obedience. And may you sanctify my sinful lips that from a vessel of clay the riches of your grace may be proclaimed this morning. Lord, and keep me from error. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Well, on January 16, 1991, President Bush gave a nationwide address from the Oval Office to announce the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I didn't hear it, but I I was on a submarine at the time under the water, but we have uh, recordings of it. But he also announced uh, something else that, that day, that night. He announced a new world order. He said, quote, We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. A world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. And when we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. 
an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders, unquote. Well, in case you haven't read the charter of the UN recently and, uh, and know what the vision of its founders was, its charter states that its goal is to establish a one-world government to, quote, maintain international peace and security, unquote, and to eliminate war. And though it sounds very nice, this na- entity is at war with Christ and his people. It's opposed to his kingdom. It's fighting against all that is good and just. Their goal is to replace Christ as the savior of the world and for themselves to be the savior of the world. It's a real, it's truly a battle for supremacy. After President Bush popularized that term um, beginning on September 11, 1990 in a congressional address to joint Congress. That word became a common word to describe all those seeking to overthrow Christ's reign. The New World Order, it seems to have passed away in recent years for other words. But one of the symbols of this New World Order is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 tells us about the Tower of Babel. That that Tower of Babel was there were some paintings of it by Renaissance painter Peter Bruegel and you often see his painting used on much of the literature of the European Union and and uh, uh, other one world government uh, organizations. But Genesis 11 tells us that after the flood, people began to build a tower to be the centerpiece of a one-world government. Their goal was a united humanity, a one-world new order for all the ages. Genesis 11 says that the top of the tower was to reach unto heaven. See, this was an attempt to establish a rival government to supplant God's government and God's law. Now, God easily thwarted that effort by a confusion of languages. Remember, they had all gathered together to build this tower to reach into the heavens and they're all working together with one accord for this one world government and and God simply reached down and overnight they all spoke a different language. When they went the next day to continue their building, none of them could understand each other. And by this very profound and yet simple mechanism, all these people were scattered. Their plan to build this one world government at this tower that would reach to the heavens was thwarted. And they were scattered. The entire world project had to be abandoned. And the people were scattered to the four corners of the earth just as God uh, intended, according to God's plan. You see, God was working out his plan to establish his kingdom and to install his king upon the throne. And so, 
The Bible tells us that in the fullness of time, He sent His only begotten Son, born of a virgin, on the Feast of Dedication, the 25th day of the month of Chislev. And as the Lamb of God, Jesus entered Jerusalem to the acclaim of the Jews on the 10th day of the first month, Nisan, the day the Passover Lamb was selected. And he was slain for the sins of his people on the 14th day of that first month in AD 30, dying at the time the Passover lamb was slain. And by his sacrifice, the wrath of God for the sins of his people was forever appeased and turned away. So the angel of death, just as the angel of death passed over the Israelite homes that had the blood of the Passover lamb on their door. And as the righteous God-man, he defeated death. And he rose from the dead on the feast of the first fruits three days later. Christ, Paul said, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And then Christ spent the next 40 days speaking to the disciples of things pertaining to his kingdom, to the kingdom of God. And after his instructing his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and wait, he ascended into heaven where he is now permanently sitting at the right hand of God the Father reigning. And of the increase of his government, there is no end. But now you see that Christ had been crucified. Now that he had been raised in glory and departed to the Father, those requirements, those three requirements for the Holy Spirit to come have been met. And so this chapter begins now with the next step in God's new world order. His plan. His plan to bring true and lasting peace. His plan to establish and maintain His righteous reign. His one world government. When Pentecost had come, and that word had come, the the King James says, New King James, fully come, but it's a sense of fullness. It's a sense of fullness. The disciples were in one accord, in one place. And then the Holy Spirit came. But it wasn't a quiet affair by any means. This was a loud sound, a roar. A roar that filled the entire house where they were sitting. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. Have you ever heard the wind of a hurricane? It's, it's a powerful sound. It's very similar to the powerful sound of waves of the ocean. It's, it's a fearful thing to see the power of a mighty rushing wind. There, maybe you've seen the pictures of the effects of mighty rushing winds as they tear up massive oak trees and lay them out on the ground as they, as they wipe out entire buildings and leave just a foundation. Well, this is a, a mighty rushing wind, a loud roar, and it fills the house. Hebrews 12 uses this same word to describe the trumpets on Mount Sinai where Hebrews says, I heard the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, or the, uh, 
they did, the people there, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. This, this was a mighty sound, a fearful sound. Now Luke gives us two characteristics of this crowd that I want to highlight. He, he says that they were with one accord. One accord. No, they weren't in the car. That's a terrible joke. It means they were of the same mind. Romans 15.5 translates that same word this way. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind. There it is. One mind. And one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one mind, Paul's prayer to the Romans was that the church would be able to glorify God with one mind and one mouth. And that's what these disciples here are. They are in. They are of one mind. They are united. They are walking together. David speaks of brothers walking together. As being unified in Psalm 133. And he compares these brothers being of one mind, of walking together. He compares uh, that to the anointing oil that was poured on Aaron's head, running down his beard on, a, on the edge of his garments. And he compares it to the dew of Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is the system from which the Jordan waters came. And so the dew of Mount Hermon very literally then watered the land of Palestine. And both those are two metaphors that both refer back to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is the Holy Spirit that is symbolized in the anointing oil poured on Aaron's head as he, is, as he is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit falling as dew. The, the, holy, the work of the Holy Spirit is pictured in the scriptures as as water in baptism falling being poured upon people remember Peter and Cornelius he sees the Holy Spirit come on them and he says well these people should be baptized the Holy Spirit has fallen on them and so this is what is symbolized by the Spirit is this unity walking together Secondly, they are physically in one place. They're in one place. They needed to be in one place because this is where the Holy Spirit would come. And it, and it comes literally out of the temple. And so they are, they are all together in one place because there is an amazing sign that is about to happen. But what is this Pentecost, we, we read right over that, when the day of Pentecost had come. This is the first time that the word is used in the New Testament and in the Bible. See, Pentecost is the festival that was celebrated on the 50th day after Passover. It's called or the 50th day after the, after the uh, Sabbath, after the Passover. The, pe the Pentecost is called the Feast of Weeks. 
in the Old Testament because that is how they were to find out how they were to celebrate it. They were to count seven weeks from the first fruits Sabbath and then one more day to the day after that. So that's your 50 days, seven weeks, 49 days, and one more day after that from uh, the seventh Sabbath. So Luke, or Le- Leviticus 23, 15 says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. So the Sabbath would have been, the, Jesus was crucified, uh, uh, Sabbath would have been the 15th of Nisan. So the day after that was was um, the 16th of Nisan. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. That's the first fruits. Christ rose that day. They were to count after that 50 days. Seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Okay, so Christ rose as the first fruits. And they were to count 50 days from that. And then they were to offer a new grain offering to the Lord. This is the only feast that doesn't have a specific day assigned to it. The, the Passover happened on the 15th day of the first month. You know, other feasts happened on the other days of the seventh month and so on. But this feast doesn't have a day attached to it. You have to find out when to celebrate this feast. You have to count 50 days. This is an act of remembering. You can't say, well, it's this date, and so you can just forget about things until that date. No, they had to count 50 days because it could potentially fall on a different day every year. The big event that they're counting from is Christ's resurrection. That's what they were to be remembering. That's what they were to be thinking about. That was the foundation. His, his death, burial, and resurrection is the climax of history. That is the, the foundation, the basis of our salvation. Christ, it's, it's his obedience that secures our salvation. His perfect obedience of the law. And his offering of himself, a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath, is what we sometimes call his passive obedience. It is these. It's his obedience that brings us liberty. It's his obedience, his death and righteousness that defeats death. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit had to follow Christ's crucifixion, his glorification, and his ascension. Those things, Jesus said, had to happen before the Holy Spirit could come. But, but this whole time, they are counting. They are counting from this climax of history. The Pentecost is actually when God gave the law at Mount Sinai. That happened. Exodus 19 tells us that happened. It was in the third month that they got to Sinai. Remember, they left on the 15th day of the first month. And so this Sinai would have happened right right at Pentecost or when Pentecost would be. And see, at Mount Sinai, God constituted Israel a holy nation. 
Exodus 19 says, verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and God called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. See, this was right, right before God gave them the law. He made this covenant with them. And so Moses came and he called all the elders of the people together and he said those words to them that the Lord had given him. And all the people answered Moses together, together, one mind, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. See, at Sinai, God established his Old Testament church. Israel was made a kingdom of priests. They were given the temple plans and the Levitical priesthood was established. And the priests were consecrated and set apart for their duty to serve God. They are made a, a holy nation. These people, these band of slaves that God rescues out. They came down as a family of one man. And uh, a 70 people. And they, they are delivered from Egypt as a mighty nation. 600,000 men. Pentecost, you see, is where God establishes his New Testament church. His Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the one who has come to bring peace, is on the throne. See, Pentecost is God's establishing the true new world order. When they, when they set out from Sinai, when the Israelites set out from Sinai a, a year later, they set out as armies. They marched out of Egypt as an army, the armies of Israel. And it was shortly after they marched out of Sinai that the Holy Spirit, remember, fell on those 70 elders and they prophesied, but they didn't do it again. But Moses said, would, there, would that all, everybody would prophesy? Well, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon all these disciples. They were all, verse 4 says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And there was a great multitude there. We know that there was 120 names uh, specifically, but there was many more people that were there. At Pentecost, you see, God's word is proclaimed in many languages as 3,000 people believe and are added to the church. Now, there's a couple more uh, the comparisons with Pentecost and, and the first fruits offering and what happens here. In Leviticus 23, it goes on that we just read earlier. It goes on um, to specify the offering that was to be brought at Pentecost. After they were after they were to count out these days, then it says, "You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah, and they shall be fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord." This offering consisted of two loaves as a wave offering. 
Two is a consistent picture of witnesses in the Bible. It's two witnesses that the Pentateuch says are necessary to establish facts in a court of law. Christ sent out his disciples two at a time in the Gospels. There were two witnesses left in Jerusalem in Revelation 11 to testify in that apostate city. Remember, they then are killed, their bodies lie there, and then they are raised again. But there were two witnesses that were left in that city. Now, these two loaves were accompanied by a peace offering. Leviticus 23.19 says, Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. And these, these, all of these offerings, the two, the two loaves and the peace offerings, were waved before the Lord. Well, Ephesians tells us that Christ is our peace offering. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Paul doesn't use the word offering there, but that's the, impl- that's the, that's the um, implication. He is our peace offering, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body and through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. See, the Jews and the Gentiles together are, are his witnesses. In Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles are united as one body. Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners to the covenant, but they're fellow citizens now of the household of God. Proselytes, people, Gentiles no longer have to become Jews in order to come to Christ, in order to have full access to the throne of grace. In In the old covenant, There was the court of the Gentiles, but they could not go in any farther. Well, now that wall has been broken down. And verse 10 here states that there were proselytes and Jews together at Pentecost. Both Jews and proselytes. And see, this was actually prefigured at Sinai because there was a mixed multitude that went up out of Egypt. Exodus 12:38 says there was a mixed multitude that went out with the armies of Israel. There were other people, other proselytes included in that crowd. And so the two witnesses of the first fruits, the Jews and the Gentiles, are united into one body. Now the bread was also to be leavened. The 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 first this offering it, it was to have Um, this bread was to have leaven in it. Baked with leaven. Leaven was forbidden in the other sacrifices because it represented sin. But the kingdom of heaven is also compared to leaven that's put into bread. And then it permeates from within. It permeates throughout all of the bread. And Jesus said that was a picture of the kingdom of God. And so the Pentecost offering was a picture of the gospel message and of the growth of the kingdom. 
Not by outward conquest with the sword, but by the gospel of peace. Changing hearts from within. Just as leaven works from within. Rebel hearts are subdued by Christ our King through the gospel of peace. But Leviticus 23 also said something else. Did you catch it? It says that these loaves were a first fruits offering. Now, didn't we just say that Christ was the first fruits offering 50 days earlier? Why is there, how can there be another first fruits offering? Well, it does seem a little odd. But there, yes, there are two first fruits offering. The first fruits offering offered the day after the Pentecost was the barley harvest. The first fruits offering the second first fruits offering at Pentecost was the wheat harvest. Exodus 34:22 says, "And you shall observe the feast of weeks." Right, that's the one 50 days later of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. See, Christ was the first fruits from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection. The second first fruits offering is a picture of believers being made into his body at Pentecost. Christ the head the church is the body. Christ is the first fruits offering of the resurrection. We are the first fruits offering of his new creation, the body of Christ. James 1.18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, the head of the church. We, the first fruits of his creatures, the body, the church. Now, what's it mean? What is the significance of first fruits? Well, the first fruits are what was dedicated to the Lord. Dedicated wholly to the Lord. The firstborn was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of the field were offered to the Lord. They were the Lord's. And they were holy. They were His holy means. They were set apart. Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah 2, 3, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. And all that devour him will, will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. See, the significance of our being first fruits is, as the body of Christ is that we are dedicated entirely to the Lord as, as a holy people. Brothers and sisters, we have been set apart. How can we as a holy people give our bodies then as instruments of unrighteousness, as instruments of sin? Can, can the body of Christ have fellowship with demons? No. No, we've been set apart. It's something to remember. It's something to remember. We have been set apart, wholly dedicated to Christ. How can we yield our bodies as instruments of sin? And so, so as Christ came in the fullness of time, now at the proper time, Pentecost arrives and the Holy Spirit falls upon these believers. And there appear to them divided as tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. See, all of these disciples begin to speak in different languages. 
and a, and a very diverse crowd of people, Jews and proselytes, and it lists, specifically lists, all these nations, starting from the east with the uh, Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and moving westward to end up at Rome. Jews and proselytes. They're all these different nations. They're all gathered together. They all speak different languages. But they, they are utterly amazed that they're hearing the gospel. They're hearing the wonderful works of God in their own language. And they say, how can this be? These are Galileans. How can these Galileans be speaking all these different languages? And, you know, there's, I said, at least 120 names. So at least 120 people there. There's a possibility for 120 different languages to be being spoken. And maybe more. You see, these people, no, these people were not just hearing something in their own language. It wasn't like the disciples were up there speaking Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek. No, these disciples were speaking. It says that they began to speak with other tongues. And tongues is the word for language. The disciples are speaking other languages. It's an amazing miracle. See, this gift of the Holy Spirit is an amazing reversal of the judgment brought at the Tower of Babel where people were divided through confusion of language because of the language barrier that they could not understand one another. The great marvel here is that as God institutes His new world order, He has reversed that judgment and He's given the ability for all His disciples to speak in all these different tongues so that they can now understand. That's what they're amazed about. They can now understand the gospel. They can now understand one another. See, at the Pentecost, people were divided into nations with separate languages and separate cultures because of the confusion of tongues. But at Pentecost, people from every nation are brought together in one body. And 3,000 of this body are added to the church. When Christ ascended into heaven, Satan is cast out. And in 70 AD, Satan is bound so he's no longer able to deceive the nations as Christ the King advances his new world order, reigning until he's put all his enemies under his feet. You see, the persecution that, that we see throughout Acts and that we see today in the world around us, that, that's a sign that Christ is winning. That's a sign of the desperation of the dying, fake, old world order. Now, I want to, in closing, just point out that this is, that what's happening here, this tongues, is the same tongues that is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 and in 1 Corinthians 14. It's the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 14 and the requirements that are laid out in 1 Corinthians 14 for speaking of tongues are fully satisfied here. Tongues should only be spoken, Paul said, when they can understand, when there's understanding. Because, it's, so these are languages that have to have meaning. They're not babbling sounds of that have no, no meaning to them. 
He says, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, there's a communication going on with the tongue. My spirit prays. Um, I will, uh, I will, um, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with understanding. If you don't understand the language that's being spoken, you can't, Paul says, you can't say amen at the end of it. You can't give your assent if you didn't understand what was being said. And so, um, and so where tongues are being spoken, there must be a translation. They must, these tongues must be understood. And that is very clearly brought out in the text. All of these people, they understand the how is it that we hear each in our own language? They were amazed and marveled, saying, Look, are, are these not. How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And they hear. Um, the, they're hearing in our own tongue. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So there is understanding here. And. These tongues are, are not just jabbering. They're not just inarticulate sounds that have, that have no mi- linguistic meaning. These are tongues. They communicate. And the tongues, Paul says, are an authenticating sign to unbelievers. That's, th- this is what, th- these tongues serve as a sign to all these people. And we know that there are, there are many unbelievers here because later on in Peter's sermon, they, he sa- Peter says, you, are, you by wicked hands, speaking to this crowd, you by wicked hands crucified the Lord of glory. And when they heard this, they are cut to the heart. And they say, what men and brethren, what should we do? And Peter says, repent. There were many unbelievers here and these tongues were a sign to them. A powerful sign. They were used, though, to, to proclaim the gospel. And that's, you know, there are some many stories of, of uh, tongues that happen today, not by not because people have a gift to do it when they want to, but in places where where uh, uh, there's language barriers, there are many examples of people all of a sudden speaking in tongues, so that, and and preaching in languages that they didn't know before, as a sign as a to communicate the gospel, and so we can be very thankful here that God's new world order plan is being carried out. His plan that he is predestined from before the foundation of the world. Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. This plan that he has been working out in history is being being fulfilled. And, And there is here a unity in God's people that that the new world order cannot resist. These people are with one accord in one mind. They are speaking together. And that is a unity that that the satanic new world order cannot overcome. There There is a power in the Holy Spirit. Satan is that the new world order cannot overcome. Satan is bound so that he He will be in 70, 80 so that he can no longer deceive the nations. There is a power here that that world order, that old world order, not the new one, the old world order, 
cannot overcome. There is, there is a fire here that that old world order cannot extinguish. As the gospel will go to every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And God will gather all of his elect. And he will reign until he has put every enemy under his foot. And he does that by the sword of his spirit. The power of his word. And that goes out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a fire. The old world order cannot contain. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have established your kingdom and that you have put your king upon your holy hill. We ask, Lord, that you you might encourage us this morning that we might not be afraid, that we might not be ashamed of your law, but speak it to kings and to those in authority. We ask, that you might, that we ask Father, that you might make us your faithful witnesses Faithful at all costs. We ask that you would give us a boldness. And that you would give to us that one mind. Lord, may you bring to your church today that is so often fractured. May you bring that one mind. That we may with one mind and one heart glorify our God and Father, Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that from pulpits across this state and across this county, may your gospel go forward in the power of your Holy Spirit and not in in the power of human wisdom and not in the strength of the flesh. But Lord, for that is easily overcome by that old world order. But Lord, you are the, the mighty king. And we thank you that you have taken your authority and have begun to reign. And you will do so. Lord, we bless your name. We ask for your blessing on us. In Jesus' name, amen.